seed, it finds, um, it finds its origin in kind of an earlier version called the Old Roman Creed, which was used as early as what we can tell the second century. The earliest written forms of this creed is, is found in a letter uh, that Marcellus wrote in Greek to Julius, the bishop of Rome, around A.D. 341. And about 50 years later, uh, Tyrannius Rufinus wrote in Latin a, um, a commentary on the Apostles' Creed. And in it, he says, uh, or he recounts the viewpoint that the Apostles wrote the creed together after Pentecost, before leaving Jerusalem to church, uh, uh, to preach. So, so what we need to understand is the Apostles' Creed has been around for a very long time, possibly since the first, maybe second or third century, uh, and has served as an amazing way of just summarizing the truth of the gospel. Uh, now there might, um, well, let's, let's read through it. So I think it's going to be up here on the screen. Um, hopefully we'll have it memorized. I don't not have it quite memorized yet, uh, but you can follow along. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He descended... He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. And just so you know, you weren't supposed to read that with me. Like, I have a whole nother point. We're going to go through that together. I was going to have you stand, and we're going to read it. Um, but that's okay. Well, you know, so we'll, we'll improvise. So in the upcoming weeks, just so you know, uh, when, when the music gets done, before the preaching starts, we're going to go over the Apostles' Creed every week um, as a way of, of declaring why we're here, what we believe in, as declaring the truth of the gospel. Uh, and so you might have questions like, like, what does it mean that Jesus descended into hell? Uh, we'll get to that. That was actually probably added later. We'll get into the words Roman Catholic Church. Just, you know, the, the Roman Catholic Church, or the Catholic Church does not refer to the Roman Catholic Church. Catholic simply means universal or global. So the point of the text is it's emphasizing the universality or the, the global church, the unity that we have with other believers in other places. Um, so why are we going to study this creed? Well, there's many reasons. One, it's part of our church history. Throughout church history, this creed has served as a means of, of teaching the gospel. And when believers would come to faith and be baptized, it was something they would profess to say, we truly believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, I hope that this creed uh, will be used to help us, you and me, better understand the fundamentals of our faith and not just understand them in a head knowledge but but fill us with joy and hope as we think of what God has done for us in Jesus and as we look forward to the return of Christ I want us to see the goodness and the riches of the gospel and so uh, so we'll spend time doing that I also want us to see the necessity of the gospel uh, and the reason for that is really the third point we need to be prepared 
to defend the gospel. In today's age, uh, the gospel is greatly under attack. Uh, Many, many, many so-called churches, I'll say it that way, uh, uh, are compromising on the gospel. They're removing certain doctrines. Doctrines are, are teachings, are positions that we say the Bible clearly teaches, like the virgin birth of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. Um, those are doctrines that we would say the Bible clearly communicates. And there are churches now who say, we don't believe that, but of course we're still Christian. What they would say is, if you think of the doctrines as bricks, and, and pretend that these bricks made a wall, and they would say, well, if you take out one brick, one doctrine, the wall will still stand, right? So we'll take out the virgin birth. After all, that's kind of, uh, um, that causes conflict, and we don't want to do that. We want to be very open for anyone to believe whatever it is that they want, so we'll just ignore that teaching, or maybe the resurrection, or the miracles, or, or many other teachings that are clearly taught in the Bible. Um, but what happens is, is when you start pulling out certain doctrines, uh, something does happen. We do lose something. And in fact, one of the ones is most common, like the virgin birth. What happens if you lose that? Now just think through that. What happens if you lose the virgin birth of Jesus Christ? What do we lose? We lose Jesus. Right? There's no gospel. There's no Christianity. There's no hope. There's no resurrection. There's no payment for our sins. There's no substitute that comes for us. So so don't think of these doctrines like a wall as if, oh, I can pull out one. It's okay. No, no. If we lose these doctrines, we lose the gospel. And so so one of the reasons we're going to go through them is we want to better understand just what it is that we believe. And this is actually where we were going to stand and read the Apostles' Creed. But since you did so good already, we will skip that for next week, but it's coming. I was told last night, you love how often we stand for things. So I will make sure we stand much more often. Because um, know this, it is good. I don't even say know this. I say hear this. Like, like you got to get it right if you're going to quote me. I was being made fun of last night a little bit. Some of the things I say, but know this, I'm not easily offended. So hear this, you can do that all you want. Um, If you weren't here last night, you can just shake your head going, this is weird. Um, Today, what we're going to do, we're just going to focus. Now, so in the upcoming weeks, we're going to break this out. Basically go through it between May and June. We're going to focus only on two words today. Now, normally we'll focus on more than two words, so don't be scared. It's not going to be a snail pace. Um, But we're going to focus just on the two words, I believe. What does it mean to say, I believe? Now, these words, these words are like the words we say in a marriage, I do. There's weight to them. So what I want to do today is just, what is this weight that is in these words, I believe? What does it mean for us to say that? Uh, And so today, we're not going to look so much at the content of what we believe, for that's the Apostles' Creed. That's what we're going to do as we make our way through. But I do want us to understand why we believe and what is the nature of our belief. 
and so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them to Titus chapter 3. We're going to read verses uh, 1 through 8. And if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to go ahead and stand, because we love standing here. And we do stand. The reason we stand, if you're visiting here with us, we believe the Bible comes with the full inspiration of, of the Spirit. It comes with the very full authority of God for the purpose of correcting, teaching, rebuking, uh, making, equipping us for righteousness. So we stand as simply a means of honoring God and reminding ourselves, this book is not like any other book. So let us read Titus chapter 3, 1 through 8. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So let us pray. Our Father, our Father, help us to understand this passage today. God, may your Spirit give us wisdom. God, help us to know what it means to say I believe. I believe in your son, Jesus. God, help us to understand the truth of that, the weight of that, the gravity of that. And I pray that as we go through that, we would all understand the gospel today and that your spirit would work in us so that we unitedly would be able to say, I believe. God, I pray that every single person here would be able to say that, would know that they truly believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for this gospel that you have given us. We thank you how you save us by your grace. And God, I pray that we would glorify you now as we study your word, as we understand your word. Give us faith, grow us in wisdom today. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Uh, so we're going to make our way through this passage. Now, normally what we do is we work our way through books of the Bible, uh, verse by verse, chapter through chapter, which is we worked our way through Revelation and Jonah already this year. Uh, but in this series, we're going to do something different. We're going to kind of be jumping around in the Bible uh, to, to passages for each week uh, to help us better understand just how the gospel uh, is communicated through the entire New Testament or through the entire Old and New Testament. So we're going to start today, and we're going to look at our passage, and we're going to see that belief is evidenced by a life 
of good works. So we're going to go straight to how do we know someone believes? What is the evidence of someone believes? And there are good works. If you look, verse 3, Paul describes how we all used to live um, before we believed in Jesus. And he gives us seven vices. He gives us the words foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So what the Bible does, it's clear in saying that before we come to know Jesus, we don't live for Jesus. We don't live for the glory of God. We don't love others with a holy, godly love. A love that would honor God and a love that truly honors others. But in verses 1 and 2, what we see Paul calls Christians to now because of their faith, live a certain way. And so now we're going to have seven virtues. I think there's a slide that might that give us these. So how we used to live, and now how we do live. And he says uh, we're to be submissive, obedient, to have good works, uplifting in speech, peacemakers, gentle. We're to be courteous. The point is our belief in Jesus is made known by how we believe. Belief in Jesus produces good works. If you go down to verse 8, we read, Those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. In fact, all throughout Titus, he mentions good works. As believers, we do good works. If you go to chapter 1, verse 16, just back a page, referring to unbelievers, this is what Paul says. They profess to know God, but they deny him with their works. And so he makes the case and shows they're not really believers. Their lives completely and absolutely deny any possibility of faith. And now we see this truth in other parts of Scripture also. Uh, I'll give you two. James chapter 2, verse 14 and 17. This is what James says. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works. Can that faith save him? These are rhetorical questions where James is going, obviously no. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Works do not produce faith, but works spring naturally forth from faith just as apples do from apple trees. If you have an apple tree, brings out apples grapes bring out grapes peach trees bring forth peach real faith brings about real works according to the spirit another passage john chapter 3 verse 36 whoever believes in the son has eternal life that's pretty straightforward right believe in jesus equals eternal life now notice the contrast how he makes the contrast Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God reminds him, remains on him. He doesn't say whoever does not believe. He uses the word obey as a means of contrasting to belief. Now, obli- I'm trying to say obey and belief at the same time. Belief and obedience are not the same thing, but they're married together. They're intricately bound. Our works, the very fruit that comes from our life is the evidence of our faith why 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 when someone says you know can this person be a christian he doesn't read the bible he doesn't gather with the church he doesn't he doesn't live in a way that honors god and loves god but but is he a christian he professes faith why would we most likely say "Mm, probably not there's there's no evidence 
Why would we be so strict on that? Why would we kind of draw a line and say, look, if there's no evidence, what confidence then do we have? Well, because belief is about transformation. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. If we jump back into our text, verse 4, we read, The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. So we stop right there. What is the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior? Or should I say, who is that? Now you could say it's Jesus, but on what basis would you say that? Because it sounds right. So if we go back to chapter 2, verse 13 in Titus, we would actually read this. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So earlier in chapter 2, verse 13, Paul tells us that the goodness and kindness of God who has appeared is Jesus Christ. So now as he talks to us, how has God's goodness and kindness appeared? Well, he's appeared to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And then, he, then we read in verse 5 that because God has sent Jesus, he saved us. Our salvation comes through Jesus, the goodness and kindness of God our Savior who has appeared. And, and in verse 7, amen indeed. Verse 7, we now see what's the result. So when God saves us through Jesus, what happens? Well, Paul tells us in verse 7, he gives us three things. Justified by grace. That's number one. Justified by grace. You are declared righteous. Before coming to faith, we're guilty. We're sinful. We have no righteousness. Upon being saved, you're declared righteous. All by grace. We're made heirs. What that means is we're adopted into the family of God. So just as Jesus is the Son of God and thus the heir of God, meaning He possesses all that God has, we now become sons and daughters of God with Jesus. Now that does not mean we're equal with Jesus in the sense that we can do everything that He does. But it does mean that our identity is with Him now. So when God says, Jesus is my Son, He can now look and see you and me and see that the righteousness of Jesus is now on us and therefore we also are a part of the family of God. He brings us into His family. We then see we also have hope of eternal life. God possesses life. It's important to understand that. He possesses life because He is God. He is eternal. And so therefore, when He gives life, the life He gives is eternal to those who believe in Him. Which is why we believe that God will bring forth the new heavens and new earth and we will live forever with Him in eternity. So what we see is that God's sovereign work in our life transforms us. We go from unrighteous to righteous. From sinner to son. From under the wrath of God to eternal life because we now have peace with God. So when we talk about salvation, we're talking about being turned inside out. A transformation has taken place in us that we are now, what Paul will say, new creations. We're made new. We've experienced uh, what, what can be called a new birth. And so how is it that we are transformed? That's what Paul wants us to understand. He wants us to know, how does this transformation take place? First, he says, well, it's, it's not by anything that you did. 
Come back to our text. He says, he saved us in verse 5, not because of anything done by us in righteousness. So he's very clear. He's already said, Jesus appears, the goodness, loving kindness of God. He saves us, not because of what you do. He's very clear. There's no gray area there. We're saved by grace. And then, then he goes on to say, so, so how does it take place? If we keep going in verse 5, he says, but according to his own mercy. Now, mercy, just say mercy is God's goodness given to those in misery. The reason we receive mercy is because our sinful condition, we're in a state of misery. Um, we don't have that peace with God. We don't have uh, the joy of God within us. Sin makes everyone miserable, even if they look happy on the inside or on the outside. Sin brings about a misery. So all of God's goodness given to sinners is an act of mercy. So that so that's how it uses mercy. And mercy and grace, while they're not interchangeable, they're tied together. God's grace is God's goodness given to those who deserve the opposite. So because we're sinful, we always deserve wrath. And because we're sinful, we always are in misery. So any action that God takes towards us is always one of grace and always one of mercy. If those definitions help. Um, so he says, but it's because of mercy that he now is going to work for us. So, so what is this work of mercy? That's what Paul's going to tell us. By the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So what does that refer to? We've already seen, verse 3, before we're saved, we live in an ungodly way. Why? Because we're not righteous. We're sinful. We're under the wrath of God. That's who we are. The reason we lived that way is because the Bible says we are spiritually dead. That's the case. Ephesians 2, chapter 1, Paul writes, and Paul just, you know, wrote most of the New Testament, about 13 books. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once lived. He says, before you come to know Christ, you're considered spiritually dead. Romans 3.18, Paul says, there is no fear of God before their eyes, which means we have absolutely zero respect for God, zero honor for God, zero reverence for God. So how do we go then from spiritual life or spiritual death to spiritual life? From hating God to loving God. From rejecting His Word to delighting in His Word. Well, what we read is that the Spirit makes us new he washes us he regenerates us and that's where we get the word regeneration um, it's the whole idea that because of god's grace and mercy we're made new through the work of god now this is something that the new testament talks about everywhere this new birth that takes place and so i just want to read a few verses and there's many more, actually, in your bulletin. You'd see a little asterisk or a little parentheses, and there's a whole lot more verses there. Uh, so feel free to go look at these more. But let me just read a few of them, and you'll see how the writers of the New Testament talk about what happens when we come to faith. And these should all be up on the screen. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, 23. Nope. Verse 23. Um, Since you have been born again. Peter makes the case, you've been born again now by God's grace. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus 
is the Christ has been born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. So why is it that Christians have a love for one another? Why is it that we should have sweet fellowship with each other? Because we've been born of God and we love those who are born of God. That's how the Spirit works in us, that we would naturally love one another. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 even when we were dead in our trespasses, so this is, this is who you are. You're dead in your trespasses, but then, by God's grace, made alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, do you get the, do you get the understanding? The Bible is not meant to encourage us as unbelievers in the state and condition that we are in. It's meant to state the fact, before coming to know Christ, you are dead spiritually. All throughout the New Testament, we see dead spiritually. Dead, dead. But then, and you who are dead in your trespasses, in this uncircumcision of your flesh, meaning just that you were sinful, God made alive together with Him. So how is it that we come alive? Not by us, verse 5, but by God's grace that comes to us through His Holy Spirit who awakens us, gives us this new birth. So why? On what basis does the Spirit do this? Well, as we keep going, verse 6, it's all because of Jesus. What we read in verse 6, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is poured out on us because of what Jesus has done. Now what did Jesus do? It's because Jesus went to the cross and He died in our place and He rose again three days later overcoming sin, overcoming death, overcoming Satan that we who believe in Him would be saved. Jesus came as the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior, so you, so I, so we who believe in Him would be transformed. Jesus is the gospel. It's the whole point. It's why does the Spirit come to us? Why does God do anything for us? It's all through Jesus. Okay, but this sermon is about belief, right? At least that's what I said it's going to be on. The whole idea is we're going to understand the words, I believe. So where does that fit in? Did you see it in there? It's not there, right? It's all talking about what God does. So where does our belief fit in? Now, some people will talk about belief this way. Well, the reason I'm transformed is because I have chosen Jesus, because I have believed in Jesus, and because I have now believed in Jesus, I am now made alive. So what they're saying is, I, in my, in my dead spiritual self, saw that Jesus was beautiful, and I wanted him. And because I wanted him, God has now transformed me. But is that what the Bible says? What we see is we're dead in our sins. There's nothing pleasing about God. There's nothing that we find appealing about God. And so where does this fit in? What we understand is our belief, our faith, is the response to God's sovereign, gracious, and merciful work for us and in us in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Our faith 
Our belief is the response of God making us alive. The Holy Spirit works in us to awaken us to the beauty and the glory of Jesus that we would believe in Jesus. If we're born blind to the beauty of God, to the radiance of God, it's when the Holy Spirit now makes us new that we've been given new eyes, a new heart, that now when we see Jesus, when we see God, we love Him. We want Him. We're drawn to Him. It's like looking at a sunset on the Pacific Ocean. You ever go to the beach? And sometimes you see the sunset, right? Now, when we lived in Michigan, like, and we saw sunsets all the time, and it's like being on a beach because we were right there on Lake Michigan. And we didn't have this thing called cloud cover all the time. But here, just pretend it's a clear day. Just pretend. It might be a stretch for us. Um, but pretend it's a clear day. You're on the beach, and it's warm. Just pretend that, too. Uh, and you're there, and you see the sunset. With all the colors and all the hues, do you look at it and spit and say disgusting and just walk away? Nobody does that. But what do we do? We look at its beauty and we're moved to awe and wonder. As the beauty comes before us, the response of our heart, of our soul, of our mind is to go, wow, that's amazing. That is beautiful. That's what happens when the Spirit awakens us. When our spirit is awakened and we see Jesus, we go, I I want Jesus. I love Jesus. I've been made alive. Regeneration of my heart, of my soul, that now I see Him, I love Him, and I want Him. So how does that work, though? How does that work? How is it that the Spirit works in us to regenerate us that we would want Him? For that, we see that it comes through the Word. So there's a a verse that we use quite often here. Uh, It makes its way into many of our sermons because of its clarity and because of its helpfulness. Romans 10.17 says, So faith comes from hearing. Where does faith come from? Perfect. Where does faith come from? Hearing. Hearing. But hearing what? And hearing through the Word. Well, what word? The word of Christ. So where does faith come? Faith comes from hearing. Hearing what? Hearing the word of Christ. So notice the words. It's the words of Christ. We're not talking about hearing anything. We're not talking about any random book. We're talking about this book, 66 books inspired by God through the Holy Spirit that you work among men that this book would be written, which is why we stand Not that you have to, but we do to remind ourselves of who our God is. And when we read or hear this word, the Spirit works to awaken people so they would love Jesus and believe in Him and trust in Him. That's why we preach the gospel. This is why we preach every single week. And it's why we say that it doesn't matter what I say or when Chris is up here or Ben or anyone else is up here. It doesn't matter what I have to say. If I can't show it to you in the Word, it has really of no great value. I mean, we might be able to give you some tips on living and doing different things. The only thing that gives life is this book because the Spirit works through this Word. 
so that as the Word goes forth, the Spirit would work in our hearts to awaken us that we would believe in Jesus. When people hear the Word of God, the Spirit works that they become new creations. This is why we preach. This is why we share the gospel locally. This is why we go globally and share the gospel. It's not because we go, man, this guy, he's very convincing when he preaches. It's not because we go, well, well, he's really eloquent. He probably has a really good chance of winning people to Jesus. It doesn't matter on eloquence. It doesn't matter how good looking the person is. It doesn't matter their oracle skills. Oratory skills, not oracles. Oratory. Important distinction. Because it's by grace and mercy that God has chosen to work through His Spirit that when this word goes forth, His Spirit would go to awaken hearts that would trust in Him. See, faith, belief, is trusting God through everything He does for us in Jesus. So if we were to kind of summarize, then what is, what is this belief that we have? Well, we would say belief is about knowledge, right? It's not about a personal experience that one has when you just look deep within your soul or on a walk and you go, look, I, I think I found something within me. But rather, it's a result of hearing God's word. It comes from the objective truth of God's word. We must know truth about God. Christianity is not about blind worship. It's not about, well, just believe. Just believe something about Jesus and you're good. No, it's, it's about a particular person named Jesus who is the Son of God and what He has done for us. God has given us His word that we would truly know Him. But it's, it's not just knowledge, right? The Pharisees had knowledge in the New Testament. They did not believe in Jesus. So belief is also about intellectual assent. It's about agreeing with that knowledge. We must agree with the word. We must agree that we are sinners under the wrath of God. We must agree that Jesus is the Son of God. We must agree that he came to actually die for our sins. We have to agree. But we can't stop at intellectual assent. I think this is where often it stops. Think about it. There are many people that are in church, they know the right answers, they know truths about God, they might even be able to win the Bible trivia game. But they, they don't actually believe in God. You see, in James chapter 2, verse 19, we're told something really interesting. It says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So there's a belief that the demons have in God that is very similar to what we can have in God. And that's not saving faith. So we can know facts about the Bible. We can know who Jesus is. We can know he died on the cross. And we can say, yep, all true. And not be saved. Now that's kind of scary, isn't that? I would say that's the condition of many people in churches in America especially. Overseas, I would say not as much because persecution overseas will often refine that, and people who are believing in Jesus will often have to truly count the cost of what that means. Here in America, we don't have to do that as much, and we could say the pros and cons of that. 
but we must be careful. R.C. Sproul says this, to give intellectual assent to the things of God only elevates a person from the status of pagan to the level of demon. It advances the soul not one centimeter into the kingdom of God. Satan assents to the facts, but does not possess saving faith. Now that's kind of scary. You can know a lot of things about God. You can win the Bible trivia game, and you can say, I believe it. I really think it's true. So there has to be something more to this belief, this belief that makes us alive, this belief that draws us towards Jesus. And so while it's about knowledge, because it's not blind, and while we must agree with this, there is an intellectual assent, belief is really the whole person trusting and delighting in Jesus. Now the reason I say the whole person is because the Spirit doesn't make part of us new, it makes us entirely new. We become new creations, and our whole being now moves towards Jesus. Does that make sense? We lean on Jesus. We're drawn to Jesus. In fact, we could say belief is coming to Jesus. John chapter 6, 37 says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Jesus says, All who come to me I will never cast out. So when we believe in Jesus, we're coming to Jesus. Faith is also resting in Jesus. John 15, 5. Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So faith is this resting in Jesus, knowing who he is, trusting in him. Faith is also about being satisfied in Jesus. John 4, 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. So Jesus said, you come to me, I will satisfy your thirst, I will satisfy your hunger, I will give you what your heart longs for most. So to say that we, belief is about knowledge, assent, but it's about this delighting and being satisfied in Jesus because we know that in Jesus there's hope, that there's life. That Jesus is the radiance and the glory of God. And that what he has come to do is to save us from our sins. That we truly could have eternal life and be with him forever. So if we kind of recapped it a little bit, we might say we believe in God because we've been made alive by his grace to the spirit through the working of his word. We would say that our belief brings about good works because it's the, it's the product of what it is to be made new. We do good works. We obey God because we're new creations. The foundation of our belief is what God has done for us in Jesus. And our belief is a response to the sovereign work of God. It's trusting and delighting in Jesus. That's what it means. So I ask you, do you believe in Jesus? That's not just knowledge. That's not just intellectual assent. Do you delight in Jesus? Are you satisfied in Jesus? Do you come to him? Are you drawn to him? Do you see him as beautiful? Do you long to spend eternity with him? I'm not asking if you know. I'm not asking if you agree Jesus is God's son and died on the cross. I'm asking do you truly delight in all that God is for you in Jesus? That's saving
If so, there will be evidence. Your life, and I'll say this, will increasingly demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. Look, I, I get it. We all come to Christ in different places, right? Some of us become very fruitful right away. Some of us become very fruitful in a very long time as, as we grow and we, we become more and more like Christ. But we will begin to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. We will desire to love His Word. We will desire to share the Gospel, to love one another, to serve others. I, think about it this way. If, if the Spirit makes us new, regenerates us, so we truly become new people with new desires and new hearts and new eyes, what else would we do? Now, this isn't to then heap guilt and say, man, do I, how much do I have to read and all this, but our hearts are now inclined to lean on Jesus, to want Jesus, to trust in Him. I would dare say there are many people in churches today who, who would profess Christ, but they do not confess Christ as their Lord and Savior. They agree, but not from the heart. And so they wonder why church feels like a duty. They wonder why other people seem to be happy and growing, and they seem to be on this level of stagnancy for much of their life. I would say that there are many people, and there may be here, and I, I would say there has to be at least someone here. Because I don't think any church is immune to this. And there are someone here most likely, maybe more, just as there are in all churches, that you're here and you, you know the Bible. And you know it well, but if you look deep within you, you say, look, I don't actually delight in any of it. And I would say it's because you've not truly delighted in Jesus. And so as, as we close, I want to encourage us, I want to encourage us, not you, but us. Let us practice any type of repentance that we need to right now. Confessing, maybe it's just a blatant sin. Maybe you just know, man, I, I know I'm a Savior, but man, lately I know I've just not been living as the Spirit works in me. I've not been obeying. I've not been living the way. I've not been living out the I believe. And maybe you just know, I know I'm a, I know I'm a believer. But maybe you're here, and it just kind of resonates a little bit. Yep, I'm a little dry. I'm a lot dry. I don't actually delight in Jesus. I come here each and every week because that's what I do. And if that is you, then I would encourage you trust in Jesus today. Confess to Jesus and say, help my unbelief. That's the evidence of the Spirit working in you, that you would long for that, that you would desire God, that you would want to delight in Him. So as we, as we pray, I want you to join me with me in prayer and just pray, pray however the Spirit leads you. If it's confessing sin, if it's confessing that you don't truly believe, let us just have knowledge that as we walk out of here, we do know exactly who we believe because who we believe in matters, right? The object of our faith is what matters. When I was studying this, I, I came across this, 
this illustration. And the guy, it was actually kind of funny, the guy, he gets, goes to the park with his kid. And, and the kid says, hey, dad, let's swing. So the dad's like, cool, let's swing. So they each get on their swing, and they're going. And the kid looks over at his dad and says, let's see who can swing higher. And this dad was right after my own heart. I'll show you how I can swing. This is the time to be like super dad, right? So he's swinging, and he's swinging, and his head goes over like the crossbar, you know? Like on the swing, like he's, just, he's just up there. And the kid's like, wow. And then he hears a snap. And you know what happens after the snap? And he flies and just crumbles like a sack of potatoes. And, just like, and he describes in the book, and he's like, I just hurt. I hurt all over. Every bit of pride that I had as I, was, as I was holding on and as I was flying through there is gone. As every bone in my body just hurt. And my son could not help but laugh. And, you know, so he went from superhero to not. Uh, but the thing is, is, is he believed that that swing would hold him. But it couldn't. It couldn't. In the end, it It broke. What we believe in matters. What, what, what I would say, according to the word, is there's only one thing that can actually hold us, and that's Jesus. There's only one person who has gone to the grave, conquered sin and death and risen. That's Jesus. There's only one person who justifies us. There's only one person who brings us into the family of God and adopts us. There's only one person who gives us eternal life. It's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So as we go through this Apostles' Creed over the next weeks, and we're saying, look, I believe we're not quoting math facts. Math facts are great, and they're fun, and we should know them, right? Won't necessarily change your life. But knowing Jesus will. Knowing Jesus is the one we can delight in completely because we know he holds us perfectly. And so let us pray now. And let us confess any sin that we need to. And let us declare in our hearts that we truly believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Let's pray.